Twitch stream is live. Can somebody tell me if my mic is um, killing me? I got you. I think he's in. <laughs> Go ahead and talk. Test, 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 test. This is a Twitch stream. Hello, hello, hello. This is a Twitch Assassin stream. test. Assassin test. You are very quiet. Who, me? No, Lamb is. Okay. Wait, one. Okay, I can send a mic uh, push to talk. Uh, let's add... Connor wants to know what the Twitch is. Do you have a link for it anywhere? Uh, why don't you go ahead and put it in the um, Goham post? That works. It, Thank awesome. you, Goham. By the way, I can hear your mouse clicking, Lamb. <laughs> Uh, let me deafen in here real quick. If you were talking, no, I couldn't hear you. I could just hear clicking, probably assassins clicking. Uh, maybe. Can you hear that? Yeah. Okay. Okay, how about that? Yeah, I've got my push to talk on, so you're just going to have to kind of deal with it. You're good. Try now. You're good. Click, 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 test, test, test. Test one, two. You're one, still two. very quiet compared to the rest of us. How about now? How about, that's about this? Good. Uh, that's, that's better? Okay. Can you hear me breathing when I tab off my mic, though? No, it is dead silent. Excellent tech. Okay, I think I fixed that then. Awesome. Alright, it is now 9.15, everybody. Welcome, welcome. Perryville looks like a very interesting battle. Looking Perryville's at the, a um... very fun battle. Yeah. Out hey. of everybody, you're the quietest that was still him. I can hear <laughs> oh, him. Oh, no. <laughs> and he's, he's like the main host, too, <laughs> which is funny. How about now? I turned it up a little bit. Let me try switching audio inputs as well. Yeah, I would turn it up just a bit more. How about that? Is that any better? You are about the same that I have in Discord, so you're good. Okay, I will take same as Discord. That's good enough for me. All right, uh, everybody, welcome, welcome to another, uh, our second, actually, podcast for History on the Go. We did finally decide on the name, yay. Uh, tonight we're going to be covering two topics. We're going to be covering how did infantry change over the course of the Civil War, spanning from 1861 to 1865. That includes um, their equipment, their doctrine, so, you know, how they fought, uh, for those of you who aren't aware of the term, and their organization, so how they mustered up and moved in units themselves. Uh, that'll be our, our union, excuse me, my throat. That will be our Civil War-focused topic for tonight, and then for our broader topic, should be an interesting one, we are be going to be covering the changes and advances in battlefield medicine sp spanning from the Napoleonic era's beginnings in early 1800s all the way to modern day. Uh, starting us off, uh, there's myself, I'm Lamb, hello, and we got Mr. Hank. Hello. Mr. Hank Bob, and then we have Assassin. Howdy, howdy. And we also have tonight with us Mr. Zim. Hello, hello. 
And yeah, and let's not as forget our uh, our audience that will be talking. Yes, our every big, so often. Our big audience. Hello, boys. Let me get the text chat open here so I can see the text chat. There we go. Uh, oh, and I need to bring up my Twitch on the other monitor. That might help a little bit. Hello, Zen. I see you in Twitch. Yep. I should probably turn the Twitch on live, but I'm lazy. In any case, uh, I'm also frozen on my game, so, you know, lamel. Uh, in any case, though, uh, let me go ahead and just hit live. That should be active now. Yep, there we go. Alright, uh, start off tonight just with our rules. Go over that one more time since I see we have some new faces in the crowd. Hello, everybody. Uh, we want to keep things very brief here. Uh, number one, please be respectful, kind and courteous to each other. You know, don't, like... Obviously, this is a stage, so this is a little bit more of a controlled environment, but try not to talk over each other when you're up here on the stage, if you're called on. Um, you know, don't be running your mouth, telling people that their ideas are terrible. That's not what we're here for. Uh, just keep everything nice, polite, um, on topic. That leads into number two. Let's keep our discussions on topic to, our to what we're discussing. Uh, a little bit last time, we went off on a tangent, and that was a very nice tangent. And stuff like that's okay when we're still talking about historical stuff, but that's not, like... Let's not talk, start talking politics and the like. Let's uh, let's keep the politics and sundry out of it. We're here to have fun and learn about some history. And uh, number three, if I can get my my list here. Uh, yeah, number three. Let's keep everything kind of topical to the discussion. I know that kind of sounds like number two, uh, but more so, if we're talking about uh, the Civil War, let's not go forwards to like Iraq. Obviously. With the discussion that we're gonna have today, battlefield medicine, that'll change a little bit. We're gonna be talking about the whole field of history, and that's okay. Um, but when we're trying to discuss things such as, you know, um, 1861 and 1862, let's not go ahead and bring in like modern day wars and stuff such as what's going on over in Europe at the moment. Uh, let's kind of keep that in the down low and out of the out of the public public eye for for that. Uh, any questions, comments, concerns before we get started? Just. Um... One more thing, remember, um, we're only human. We only know so much, and sometimes we get things wrong. Uh, if we do get things wrong, make sure you let us know. Um, we are not afraid to correct what we've gotten wrong. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Like, if you see that we've said something and it's something you don't agree with, uh, you're more than welcome to bring it up and let us know. Um, if it is something that's wrong, that's okay. We will correct it. And uh, we have no issues doing so, like Assassin said. Uh, we're all here to learn and have fun. And, you know, just because we know these things about our his history doesn't make us these all-seeing gods. Uh, unfortunately, we do get things wrong and make incorrect uh, statements. Like, like last week when I tried to call uh, Sheridan, uh, you know, Sedgwick. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, it's okay. Uh, we make mistakes, and uh, we're just here to have some fun, boys. Uh, that said, let's go ahead and get things started. So, like we had alluded to, our first topic tonight is going to be a very a very fun one, I think. Uh, it's going to be what happened to infantry tactics, equipment, and organization from 1861 to 1865. And, oh boy, a lot happened to the infantry in the American Civil War. <laughs> yes, it, it sure did. Oh, um, man. Starting off with Napoleon tactics and ending off with a lot of trench warfare. 
Yeah. Um, it's going to be fun to uh, to kind of talk about and see where things started to make that change. And does anybody uh, mind if I happen to open this one up? Go for it. Go for it. Move this chat, chat over here now. I believe you're starting sooner towards the beginning of the war, so it would make the most sense. Yes, so I'd actually like to start with the very beginning of the war, and I don't have it in my lap right now. It's currently resting on top of my bookcase, but a book series that I happen to have that I picked up over in uh, Dillard, Georgia, was a series called Battles and Leaders of the American Civil War. And uh, what's really cool about this little, little book series here is these are uh, first-hand accounts written by a majority of people, a uh, majority of leaders and enlisted officers and NCOs from the American Civil War. And uh, it, it's just this, this very long um, series of documents, first-hand accounts, and sundry from the war itself. Uh, so one thing that really catches my eye, for example, right out the gate... Um, so how many of you are familiar with the fact that the U.S. didn't really have a big standing army at the start of the American Civil War? Yep. Yeah, it's... Yeah, so... You, you can you can see it's, uh... It's very, very small. Yes. So something that must be understood is, uh... American Civil War starts in 1861. Middle of spring, starting towards summer of 1861. Before then, there was the Mexican-American War in the 1840s. And then there was the um, the Indian Wars of the antebellum period, and but other than that, the Union Army was not very large. You have these, you have a certain few regular regiments such as the Seventh Infantry. Uh, we know them as the Cotton Balers, for example. They're down in like Texas at this point in time, I want to say. Uh, but for the most part, the, U the U.S. Army was just kind of just anemic thing that didn't really get much funding. You have to understand that. At the onset of the American Civil War, soldiering is still very much seen as this, like, not derogatory, but disreputable occupation. Like, you don't go join the army because you're a successful person. Which is which is weird, I know, for us modern-day folks, because we, we look at the army and go, man, everybody loves the army. Army's great people, uh, love the Marine Corps, love the Navy, but you, you don't really see that in the 1800s. And I, I would I would argue for officers at least that it, you know if you're a wealthy person you might go to uh, officer school. Mm -hmm. Yes, you see a lot of so wealthy. I think that would be I, I think that would be like the major exception. But for the mm -hmm. general populace, yeah, you wouldn't really want to go to the army. I'd even build off that a little bit more and say that the officers were kind of an exception. But only to a certain extent, because even then, a lot of the regular officers were looked down upon. Uh, we can go back to accounts of the uh, Mexican-American War, and you have these big feuds between the volunteer soldiers and the uh, regular soldiers. I mean, you get with the southern uh, population as well. Most people that were from wealthy families ended up going to military school at West Point or VMI to become officers, which would later go to serve into the Mexican-American War, mm -hmm. and then... The most of them would become your rather known generals in the American Civil War. Lee, Longstreet, Hood, Jackson from VMI instead of West Point. Pickett. You know, they, Pickett, Heath, so on and so forth. So I think it's not just the wealthiness part of it, but you see a lot of these Southerners go down there because a lot of them are wanting to fight the Mexican-American War because those states are 
most affected by the war at this point right now, too. Yeah, I, I think that's actually something very important to hit on. Out of all of the notable officers that fought in the Mexican-American War, I want to say like 80% or more joined the, the, the Confederacy. You did have a few notable Union officers, such as uh, Grant. I believe Sherman was also in the Mexican-American War, but I could be wrong on that. Uh, Grant, I know for sure. And then you've got uh, Hancock. Hancock's a good notable one. But but for the most part, these big names, such as Lee, Jackson, uh, what's his name, Armistead, these guys didn't they didn't stick with the, uh, the Union Army, at the, whether it be because their state succeeded or even for a couple of the Northerners because they just believed in the Southern cause. So Sherman was not in the Mexican-American War, he was in the Seminole War. Seminole War. I knew he was in some thinking little war, but not... Okay. Okay, thank you. But yeah, you see this, um... This disparity, and that, that continues on through into the, the fighting itself when the fighting breaks out. Uh, one of these first-hand accounts I wanted to bring up, uh, there's this one, the, uh, the DC National Guard... <laughs> Uh, and I don't think they were called the National Guard at that time. I'd have to go grab the book and look at it. I might do that while somebody else is talking. Uh, but the, what's effectively the DC National Guard, which is like 40 dudes at this point in time. Uh, you think you think that... You have to understand that DC, while it was the, 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 the capital of the, the uh, country, really was still this like swampy backwater. But even still, even that being a capital of the nation, there were 40 mustard men, and only, like, half of them had muskets. But then you have these volunteer units as soon as the war breaks out, and it's like, I'm gonna raise a volunteer company, and I have 300 dudes on my muster, and I'm gonna draw guns for all 300 of these guys. And it, it's funny to see, it's interesting to me to see stuff like that, because it, it, it drives home that the, the U Union even, like, at the very beginning, wasn't built off a regular army until much, much later into the war. I mean, you're looking at some of these early, early battles, um, and you're looking at the, the amount of people they have, and you can see just by that mm -hmm. that they were not... they're not really ready for it. Um, they, they knew... You know, you, you see the writing on the wall, you see the war coming... But they weren't really prepared for it. So you see, you know, Army of the Potomac, uh, um, for example, during like the Battle of Bull Run, or uh, uh, what, what? What do they? What? What does the other side call it? Because first like, Manassas. 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 First Manassas. Yeah. So you're looking at you know twenty one thousand men um, in the Army of the Potomac, which. You're, you look into the later battles and you see, you know, they got more, you know, they, they've, they're, they're starting to build those armies up um, once they kind of get into the swing of things and they're going around and grabbing people. Well, I mean, I think a good point to bring up for that with the amount of soldiers is the Civil War is the first American war that the draft was used. When Lincoln issued mm -hmm. the 90-day, the 60-day, the 100-day drafts that pulled people on and then he would have to go into the three-year draft yeah this is the first time that american citizens were forced to go join the war yeah and i think Connor that's a, has to say so but yeah you know just um you're Connor. looking at sorry what connor had saying he wanted to say sorry. what's up yes, sir. what you got for us connor 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 
I don't believe he's audio. Oh no! Back down. Yeah. Uh, Connor, if you have raise your hand. Yeah, raise your hand yeah, if you raises, fix it. Yeah. Yes, sir. Um, uh, what were you gonna say, though, Assassin? Oh, oh, there he is. There he is. Yep. Go ahead. So I have a question. Uh, I think this was Assassin that said it. So when you're referring to the Army of the, of the Potomac, you're referring to the Confederate one, right? Yeah. So I'm I'm referring to the Confederate Army uh, at that at this time. So um, during okay. during that first battle, you have the Army of the Potomac, the Army of uh, Shenandoah, and the Union Army. And I think this is actually a good point for anyone in the audience confused. Pre sixty two, the army names were actually switched. Army of Potomac was the Confederacy. And Army of Northern Virginia was actually the Union Army at that time. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Switch so the names the, later. The Army of Northeastern Virginia. Yeah. For the Union. Uh, yes, it's under Northern. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you are completely right on that. Um, but yes, I'm referring to the Confederate Army of the Potomac uh, starting off. That's that's what um, that first, the first real battle or the first battle of the Civil War. Um, yeah, the Confederates were, were the Army of the Potomac. And by Gettysburg, I believe, uh, if I'm looking at this correctly, the Army of the Potomac is now the Union, and they have 85,000 men, which uh, you're, you're starting to see, you know, now, they, now they're starting to get their stuff together about mid-war. Mm-hmm. Yeah, something also to hit on, I think, for these early war battles is a lot of these regiments were, at least on the USA side, I don't remember for the CSA side, to be honest with you, Hank probably knows better than I do, a lot of these guys that were raised for this first Manassas uh, Battle of the Bull Run were on three-month billets, which is, I think, why Urban McDowell gets a lot of flack for pushing into this army, or this, pushing into this battle so early into the war, because, you know, most people look at this battle, first Manassas, uh, run and they go well he pushed in way too quick he wasn't ready for it but you also have to understand that he only had his force for three months and they were coming up at the very end of their billet already yeah lamb you're correct on that they were 90 day volunteers yeah was it that way for the csa as well or was the csa at, uh, monthly? C csa did not have uh like a billet like that it was on the union army okay the comparator you signed up you're serving the whole war okay gotcha thank you they were promised, but, you know, with yeah. how their manpower shortage was, they were never, you know, given that right. time, like how the Union were, because the Union did issue out people past their time. If you were the 90 days, they, you know, disbanded your unit. A lot of them would later be forced to either merge with another unit or would, you know, take their time off after that. Yeah, but for these this first battle, like, you have all these volunteer forces on 90-day billets, and so McDowell's thinking, I have to go in. I have to go and fight this. So he goes Yeah, in because with... then you, then your army walks off on you, mm -hmm. basically. Yeah, and something else to consider, uh, let's look at the equipment. I mean, this is early into the war. There was, like, maybe 15,000, 20,000 Springfield 55s, like, total in the U.S. Not in the Union, not in the Confederacy, in the U.S., a lot of people just assume that, like, oh, the war happened, everybody's got Lorenz rifles or Whitworth rifles running around. That that wasn't really a thing. <laughs> like, you, you get to the Battle of First Manassas and uh, Bull Run, I'm just going to call it Battle of Bull Run because that's quicker to say. Um, 
most of everybody that fought in these battles had these had ancient rifles that they'd either brought with them from home and literally just farming or hunting pieces that they'd go shoot birds with or they had the maybe they had some of the Springfield 55s with their very woefully inaccurate Maynard tapes Maynard tape primers excuse me or they had literally like old Springfield 1842 pattern muskets with round shot from the uh, from the Mexican-American War, and we hadn't really done the buckingball thing yet, that wasn't really a thing right when the war broke out. Much as people like to meme about buckingball and how, you know, you, you turn your musket into a giant shotgun, that, that didn't really come out until about 62. 61 was still, we're shooting at each other with just round shot and Napoleonic uh, pike and square formations. And, uh, and, uh, so you have this, uh, and that was on both sides. I mean, you look at even the cannons that were used at the time, the cannons were basically just old Napoleonic 1814-1812 model, like, six-pounder field cannons. Yeah. But uh, I would I would like to argue on the side of, you know, they, they basically brought their own guns, so many of them were probably very comfortable and knew how to fire those guns a little better than when they got those newer guns, and they were like, more likely than not, they probably overshot a lot of their rounds, getting rifling and better mm -hmm. powders and stuff. Um, I, I believe there's a few accounts of them getting those new guns and they take them into battle and they're completely whiffing all their shots. Yeah, especially I could, I could the, be wrong on that, but especially on the artillery and once uh, the Confederate, because the Confederates didn't really have a lot of artillery going into the, the first Manassas. A lot of what they got artillery-wise was what they stole from Ricketts' battery at, during the battle itself when they overran the Union positions on the left flank. Yeah, and most of their artillery, they took a few cannons off Sumter, mm -hmm. uh, and a lot of them came from the old military depots from the Mexican-American War that they took from them. Yeah, so I think when, the, when the states seceded, they took those. They took almost every armory with them. Yeah, like all the cannons and stuff like that, and most there was a few uh, batteries that were taken from VMI too. Mm -hmm. Not the students, not until '64, but the actual cannons themselves from the academy were used in the battle. Right, but yeah, no, assassin. I think you're absolutely right. I think uh, that going into this, a lot of these troops, these just volunteers that are untrained and don't really know what they're doing. I, I think they were mostly comfortable with the rifles that they got, which is why they took them. And so when they start getting these more advanced, more uh, fancy rifles, like, you know, Springfield 55 with a Maynard tape, I bet most people don't even know what a Maynard tape is. It's a little tape tape roll that you stick on the end of your musket, and it, or not on the end of your musket, on the end of your flint, flint pan, excuse me. And the idea is you shoot your rifle, you pop the flint back open, you move your Maynard tape down to the next percussion cap on that tape, you pop it back to, back to full cock and fire. But So kind of like those little pop it things from childhood right the yeah. little like a cap, little yes. cap guns yeah yeah thank you barracuda and connor's also right um actually that's a good point i'll interrupt myself to say that uh, mcdowell was promoted to a brigadier general from a major yeah you're getting a lot of you're getting a lot of movement a lot of uh, people who at at this point probably didn't know what they were doing yet um they're they're just kind of being thrown thrown into a position because of necessity. 
I was just going to add on to that. Like you were saying, the uh, infantry was whiffing shots over the line. There's also accounts of captains and stuff being at the back of the line on those horses and getting just blasted by these new rifled barrels, and they had no clue what the heck was going on. So you had a lot of officers yeah. dropping dead that they had no clue what was happening. Yeah, because they adjusted their fire, and now they're hitting the poor dude in the back. Well, even if they didn't adjust their fire, they're shooting over the line, hitting the guy at the back. Yeah, yeah, that's what I mean. They, they, they've adjusted their fire for their old firearms, I should say, and now they're overshooting, and it's hitting the, the now officers. the officer who's above his men uh, in a high position where you know he can give orders and people can spot him easily is now directly in the line of fire. Yeah, I mean, we don't think about it, but there was a lot of officers that died at the Battle of the Bull Run. I mean, Ben R.D., the guy who gave Stonewall Jackson his nickname. Or at least we assume that this guy that gave Stonewall Jackson his nickname, we really don't know. And guess why we don't know? We don't know because he died. <laughs> so it's like, you got this, um, you have this disproportionate lack, or this, I'm sorry, this disproportionate death that you see uh, in officers and trained leaders. Uh, going into this battle, so it really savaged their ranks going into the next, you know, phases of the the war itself, right after Manassas. Uh, oh, Barracuda brings up a good point. For those of you who aren't aware of, like, how officer ranks work, Brigadier General from Major is a huge, huge jump. That's, you go from Major to your, uh, Lieutenant Colonel, then you go to Colonel, then you go to Brigadier General, which is a one-star general. And above that, you have your Major General, and your, I believe the highest that was ever used in the American Civil War was the Lieutenant General, which is a three-star. And Connor also brings up a good point for early war uh, combatants, where um, where the with the accounts of the newer soldiers who weren't battle-hardened are losing their ramrods because they're firing them. Mm -hmm. uh, they're, you know, you get you get panicked when you're being shot at. So you're trying to reload that firearm as fast as possible, oh, yeah. and most of them aren't putting it back in their 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 uh, holder. The, the holder on the firearm. So at some point they just forget that it's still in there, and they shoot their ramrod off. Yeah. And now they can't reload. And yeah, it's like what are you gonna do now? Depending on depending on how close the enemy might be, uh, you know, I someone probably got hit by a ramrod <laughs> i would love you know? to know if that was like i i would love to know so i would love to know if there's an account of someone getting skewered i would like to bring up a point for what lamb was saying but uh along with barracuda with the rank system this is gonna go probably later into our discussion as well so i might as well you know get this yeah. out here for anyone that doesn't know so typically both sides this is how it would go it would be colonel is in charge of your regiments brigadier general is in charge of your brigade which is four red four to five regiments typically your major generals were your division leaders which were one to four brigades and then your lieutenant generals major generals and lieutenant generals were your core commanders and the confederates never really had a specific rank for you know general of the army because there was never one full commander of both armies right but the union did sure uh grant yeah. is the first ever american full general of both armies because he was in charge of both sherman's army of the west and meade's art uh george meade's army of the, of the east. east yeah 
so he is the first ever American general, I believe, to have the rank of general of the United States Army. He was a lieutenant general, but you would consider him now as a five-star general in today's term. So that's yeah. how the ranks and uh, formations would have worked. Yeah, that's how they would have shaken out. Uh, good. Uh, Barracuda's regiment size, but regiments were about a thousand people. Each company would be about a hundred, and each regiment would have about ten companies. Yeah, and also keep in mind this is like on paper. There's a difference between yeah, on yeah, paper and what's paper. actually mustered. And because yeah. A lot of regiments never replenished after battles either, so you're getting units that would have probably mustered in with like 1,200 people. That the Battle of Gettysburg, they're down to 400, 500 people because they just were never replenishing. Yeah, and I think that's something good to bring up about like the differences because we're talking uh, like um, what do you call it a doctrine here? Confederate replenishment doctrine versus Union replenishment doctrine is something that's like actually very different. <laughs> Uh, with the Confederates, they see a unit and, oh, that unit's down to, like, 300 dudes. They're gonna just throw more fresh recruits into this regiment and expect them to kind of just, you know, go back to being a full-size regiment. The Union doesn't do that. The Union decides, um, basically, well, you know, we have this unit and it's just gonna have whatever it's given it, whatever manpower it's given when it's raised, and, you know, any reinforcements or recruits are just gonna be put into a new unit. They don't the Union doesn't replay, replenish its units, it just makes new ones. So you'll have, like, 1st and 2nd Virginia at the end of the American War, you know, these CSA units that have been fighting the whole war, going up against things such as, like, 127th New York. Yeah, so you're looking at, you're looking at folds versus, uh, just, just straight from scratch. Yeah. I, I think yeah. the Union only did this did that themselves, they folded a couple of units, and notably, um, the 2nd, not Missouri, listen, the 2nd Maine with the 20th Maine that everybody knows about over at Battle of Gettysburg, but for the most part, they didn't do that. I mean, another example of that would be the 14th Connecticut merging with the 2nd Connecticut Heavy mm -hmm. Artillery. Yeah. The 14th Connecticut was one of the units that fought in every single major battle on the East, from Bull Run, Antietam, Gettysburg, all the way to the Overland Campaign, where they merged with the 2nd Connecticut, which was a brand new unit right. in infantry. So they would replenish the force there, and they would go off as the 19th Connecticut. Sometimes they would completely rechange the names after the merging, too. Yeah, just to make everybody even more confused. <laughs> yeah, uh, so moving on a little bit from... Um... First Manassas, we get to this period right after. Oh, hold on, Connor's got something good. Count uh, from Battle of Spotsylvania, gallant officer whom Mr. Roche referred to was doubtless Major Ellis of the 49th New York. Responded Galloway, his arm was pierced and Bradley, er, badly bruised with a ramrod, shot away either in the exciting moment of loading and firing or in a spirit of haste to get a quick shot at one offering so good a target. However, the Pennsylvanian claimed that Ellis was shot upon the parapet of the Confederate works. So there you go. That is amazing. Thank <laughs> you, Connor. Go. Thank you very much. And it, to think, to think that it was uh, upon an officer, right? Th mm -hmm. That, yeah, that's, that's yeah. actually hilarious. I, I mean, that. you gotta realize that Battle of Spotsylvania is in 1864. The Confederates might not have had ammunition, and yeah, <laughs> let you me fire look what at you the... got, right? I am gonna currently look at the map and see where they might have, because if they're talking about the parapet, they're probably talking about uh, mule shoe, the mule shoe. So, they're they're up and yeah, close, yeah. so, I mean, fire that ramrod, skewer a few guys at up and close, you know what I mean? Here's, here's another, yeah. here's another uh, 
through the exchange between the Pennsylvanian Galloway and Mississippian Roche could not def- definitely. Def- definitely place the timing and condition of the New York's major wounding. Galloway's 1887 article in the Century magazine caught the eye of Richard T. Owen, once a second lieutenant in the 12th Mississippi Infantry, Harris's Brigade. After, would you quit freaking posting stuff I'm trying to read here? (laughs) (laughs) Once a second lieutenant in the 12th Mississippi Infantry, Harris's Brigade. After reading about the unusual nature of Ellis's wound, Owen set about to track down set about to track down a former comrade, Sergeant John D. Duran, or Dura. It took him some time, but eventually he determined a New Orleans address and wrote, Well, old fellow, I have found your ramrod, or at least the one you shot at the Yanks in the Battle of Spotsylvania Courthouse. If you remember just before you fell, you loaded your gun, with one of the loose ramrods lying around and remarked to me that you had been in every battle our regiment had been up in up to that time and had fired as often as anyone else. But you never knew if you had killed any of that enemy and that if one of them was found with a ramrod in him, he was your man. You, man, were, okay. struck just, <laughs> you were struck just as you fired your gun. <laughs> You see, I, I wish we could do that in War of Rights, because sometimes I feel exactly how this guy feels. I'm firing as much as everyone else, but I don't know if I'm hitting anybody. That's funny. Yes. You... Connor is requested to speak. Go for it, Connor. Go for it. He also added in there that assassin jumped over that the uh, guy that was shooting took a mini ball to the head. Oh. oh. Yes, I was trying to I was trying to read, but people kept posting stuff, so uh, I, I may have missed a spot or two. You're good. You're good. Okay, this is a bit off topic from our general point, but uh, it is, uh, uh, what's the word, Uh, relevant to the topic of firing. Hold on, your your audio is messing up on us. Sorry. Uh, Uh, Is this better? Yes. Okay, so at the end of the Battle of the Wilderness... Uh, when the entire woods were on fire and there was wounded troops stuck in there, there was reports of wounded soldiers, uh, like, you know, game-ending themselves with ramrods, like, you know, firing them. That's fun. Very interesting. Uh, I would like to bring up uh, just a small little divot for what we're talking about with strategy-wise and all that is uh, the Anaconda plan early in the war created by Winfield Scott, not Winfield Scott Hancock, Winfield Scott. Uh, His plan early in the war was to pretty much starve the Confederacy. He wanted a Navy blockade of every port running from Virginia all the way through the Gulf of Mexico. And it wasn't as successful as people really think it was, but it led to all the sieges along the Mississippi. This led to Butler being able to go through Louisiana and capture Louisiana early in the war. This stopped like a lot of troops from coming in from Mexico and like troops from the British coming to help any Confederacy and pretty much starve their economy as well in this war because any of their cotton that was their biggest export is just being shut down. 
-hmm. So that also changed pretty much how infantry was fought because now you're fighting with older weapons while the enemy is getting brand new weapons, either manufacturing or being able to get it from outside countries. Uh, just to go on another little divot just off of what he said, I'm not going to go too far, but because mm -hmm. of the Anaconda plan, the uh, CSA had to get creative, and that also led to them uh, engineering some new designs and stuff, which would later lead into ships that we see coming to use in World War One and World War Two. That being like the USS, or not USS, it would be the CSA's Navy, but the Hunley, which was one of the first ever submarines. Submarines, yeah. And then Ironclads, which would yes. lead later into yes. battleships. Yes, yes, oh, yes. Yeah. Rip, uh, rip the Hunley, it, it, uh, it did its job, but unfortunately the crew, I believe, um, sustained some sort of barrow trauma from the explosion. Actually, they... Uh... Not to cut you off there, it wasn't that. They actually grounded themselves in a uh, sand dune. Gotcha. And they took some water in from that. Gotcha, well, gotcha. The, uh, the water actually came in from a... Uh, they When they torpedoed... I say quote-unquote torpedoed because it was just mm. a bomb on a... It, yeah, it's just, yeah, it was a bomb on a very long... <laughs> they took a shot through the front glass that Did damaged the glass, and when they beached themselves, it broke. Really? I think... Honestly, this whole point right here about the Ferris being innovative and stuff, it, it wasn't even just that. Uh, what's it called? The monitor. Yeah, like Barracuda is saying. Uh, the Ironclads was a big innovation during the war. But so were the first hand grenades you really see besides the Grenadiers in Revolutionary War and Napoleonic War. The U.S. Army created a grenade called the Ketchum Grenade. Where Have you ever seen those... Uh, nerf football darts oh yeah like yes yes it was like that with the, with but, the fins on the back right yep and they would have a pressure plate on the front of it and if that thing landed it would explode and the confederate army was getting bombarded by these during the battle of vicksburg but these were so ineffective because they had to hit the pressure plate to explode that the confederates set up blanket nets to capture them before they would explode and they would throw them right back at the unit. That's hilarious. At the that is wonderful. Stallings uh, has his yeah. hand raised. Get to that now. Yes. What you got for Go Stallings? Ahead. Uh, about the HL Hunley. I, I think I remember a source that said the um, crew were found in irregular positions, which indicated that they you know, um, didn't make any attempt to escape. So I think that theory about the pressure from the torpedo going off is the correct one. That's all I wanted to say. That's that's the one that I heard, um, where they sustained some sort of injury, or uh, they it, it was something that took them suddenly. That yeah, because if it was water, uh, they would have at least some time to try at least try and escape, but mm -hmm. they were found in their positions. So yeah, yes, nobody nobody had left their original positions. They're still figuring out what exactly happened with that. Yeah, I think I think it's fair to say that it could be one of any of those, um, but it was something that took them suddenly. But to, let's get back to our original yes. um, <laughs> reason why for this uh, first half and get back to our lovely infantry. Yeah, um, let's go forward a little bit to right after First Manassas, uh, just building on this early war train, uh, and then I'll let Hank talk about uh, late war stuff. Uh, something that we see immediately after First Manassas and McDowell is sacked from being commander of the Army of the, I want to say that's what, the Northern Virginia at the time, is what we said? 
Sorry. Um... Yeah, yeah. McDowell was Army yeah. Northern Virginia. So after McDowell gets sacked, we get McClellan in to replace him. And I know a lot of people like to talk about McClellan. Um, but something that McClellan did very good, whether you like him or not, was he rebuilt the Army of the of Northern Virginia. He re basically rebuilt the Union Army, trained it, and drilled it all the way through the end of, I want to say, honestly, to the end of 1861 and going into 1862. The, the Union Army of Northern Virginia? Mm-hmm. Okay, because just like just like the Army of the Potomac, the Confederacy also had an yeah. army yeah, of yeah. Northern Virginia. <laughs> yeah, I just want to make everything very um, confusing. Connor else. says Army of the Northeastern Virginia. Okay, gotcha. But yeah, so we get we get this. Uh, basically, McClellan decides I'm not going to fight battles. You know, building into our strategy here, I'm not going to fight battles immediately. I'm going to take time to drill and train my troops. And yeah, it gave the CSA time to drill and train their troops, but ultimately, I think that was the correct maneuver for him. Yes, I believe I believe better trained troops, uh, even if you have to wait a little while longer, is probably the uh, the better choice. Uh, Unless, of course, you are starting to face a very, very heavy push from the other side where you're going to have to get some people out there no matter what. Yeah, I mean, I, I think this, something that we see during the Civil War is this, this lack of the ability of volunteer units because they don't have that training. Whereas our regular army units, like even though they are volunteer regulars and they're not draftees... Uh, they're still like volu you know they're still volunteering for the job, but they're they're under the regular army and not just raised from a state and sent somewhere. You see this better, what do you call it? Um, one, this better training, but two, this better equipment, and three, this better morale. Almost, I want to say, is better. Like, um, they want it more. If that makes sense, they care more about it. Yeah, you know, you're 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 starting to get career soldiers instead of. Mm -hmm just your regular volunteers and you know you're starting to get people who they know they have a little more experience they know what they're doing a little better so they're going to be a lot more effective on the battlefield yeah um let's shall we switch to somewhere around mid-war and something that uh anybody who plays war rights would know is the battle of antietam because we're now we're starting to see a more large scale war going on. Yeah, I mean, I could pick up from there. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Um, so now you're getting into sixty two and sixty three here with both armies, but at this point of the war, both armies are at pretty much the largest size they're gonna be, besides the Union Army. The Union Army will grow a little bit more in sixty four, but not by too much. This is where. Now the Union Army is doing the three-year volunteers and getting the draft ready. So you have McClellan's reformed Army of the Potomac now with all the different corps and all that. This is the first time the Union Army or any U.S. Army in general had corps. Everything was pretty much regimental and brigade-style leadership. Now it's corps leadership. They're going up the chain of command to a, big, a larger overhead general here. And you're going to see still some Napoleonic war tactics being done with the lion battles with you're seeing them march straight into like gunfire in the wheat field and stuff like that straight into open Bloody lane, woods, yeah. blind lane. You're going to see Westwoods, Dunker church. And even you're going to see that in Burnside's bridge 
where they're using the same strategies, just charging over a bridge where you had the fortified Confederates a little bit there of AP Hill's division. But this is, that's the thing I want to bring up with now you're starting 62, 63 with the Confederate army. Now you had Jackson who's starting to use light infantry tactics, which would be AP Hill's light infantry division. They're primarily going to be horse artillery. They're going to be smaller units, but they're going to go around with fat, you know, faster strategy and more cavalry scouting in front of them. Now, prior to Antietam, you had AP Hill's light division break off to go take Harper's Ferry, and then would be, you know, the savior pretty much a Confederate army from being destroyed at Antietam and hold off the Union Army at the bridge long enough to reform back at Sharpsburg and hold them off from completely cutting off Lee's uh, retreat. Yeah, and we're, and we're looking at, uh, during during the Battle of Antietam, we're looking at some pretty major uh, differences in army sizes. Uh, ha- having the Army of Northern Virginia uh, with Longstreet's and Jackson Corps uh, or cores, not corpse. I'm sorry, uh, but they're having they have uh, thirty nine thousand two hundred roughly against the Army of the Potomac's Union, uh, seventy thousand, uh, led by McClellan. Uh, something I I learned kind of recently um, it, it involves uh, Burnside's uh, part of the battlefield uh, uh, or Burnside's Bridge. Um, hat where he goes up and he basically creates a defensive formation around uh, Burnside's bridge. Um, but if he had continued forward, it would have been a pretty clean sweep and not much to fight. Um, but he decided because of personal reasons, which is something that um, I find very interesting uh, given the, the situation, but he holds back due to personal reasons um, and allows the Confederacy to take up hold on the hill on the other side of Burnside's Bridge. It, uh, it Only until the Inspector General arrived did he, uh, did he move. Not only did Burnside uh, pretty much stutter his attack, McClellan kept almost a whole core in reserve that he really could have used to push the center of Lee's line, which was the weakest, which was at Bloody Lane, which he pretty much had a division just stranded out in the open. That if he threw that extra core in and wasn't, you know, so passive, he probably could have broken the army before AP Hill arrived. Uh, that's also what you're going to see with a lot of these Union generals up until Grant is a lot of them are very cautious of Lee. Even though they have the superior number almost throughout the entire war, they are very cautious of Lee's positions and won't really chase them. Yeah. Yes, uh, Bloody Lane or Sunken Road, um, uh, you see a Confederate stutter on that, having them have a, an amazing position in a uh, deflated road where they are causing havoc amongst the union but because of a uh, faulty order or a misheard order um uh the the dumbfounded officer who is leading uh the the confederacy on that on that front witnessed his entire army basically get up and retreat when they were 
doing really, really well. And they probably would have held that position for a lot longer, but they gave up that position to the union due to a communication error. So you're seeing you're 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 seeing these larger armies, but you're also seeing these uh, you're starting to see these big communication errors where people aren't really wanting to do certain things or uh, people uh, are are misinterpreting orders and because it's such a big unit you're not able to really turn them back around in time yeah i mean let's look at the really big one that basically everybody knows about if you've ever studied anything from the civil war repeat after me take that hill if practical <laughs> and if, if you don't know anything about the civil war that's okay so battle of gettysburg uh first day's battle uh csa finally breaks union positions around uh, the outskirts of the town and so union pulls back to culp's hill Lee, seeing that the, the Union line is breaking, orders, I believe it was Yule? Or no, it was early. It was, it? It, it was Yule's Corps. It was Yule? Or was yeah. Yule's Corps? Go take that hill. Yule's it was Yule's Corps. Early was under Yule's Corps right, as right. the okay. commander at yeah. the time. Thank you. But yeah, he, he orders him to take that hill if practical, uh, and so Yule and Early don't see this as practical, and so don't take the hill. So... USA gets this great position going into day two around Culp's Hill and around little big and little round top, and we see the battle just play out from there. So I, I think you're hitting the nail very much on the head with this. You know, the bigger the armies get, the more communication issues you have. I think that's a very accurate accurate assessment. Yeah. Yes, and in times where you know your fastest way of communicating is runners and maybe some flags uh some signal flags mm -hmm. it's definitely not very easy to get things really done and especially on the scale of gettysburg where you're having let's see i i'm sure i can find um in this wonderful book i have the numbers yes i can so we're having 75,000 versus 85,000. Um, so really only a, a matter of 10,000, yeah. yeah. And it's all, at that point, you know, you're you're really just looking for, um, you're, you're really just looking for better positioning. Um, and especially in, a, in that battle, you're having a union withdrawal through Gettysburg, if I remember correctly. Mm -hmm. Yes, the town was in Confederate hands after the first day. Yes, uh, but, you know, though they may have been outnumbered, they fought valiantly and pushed back the the union, causing the union to be on the defensive on the southern field. So, um, let me just correct you there quickly. The first yes. day, the Confederates did have a number advantage at... On the first day, the Converts had two corps. They had... Um, Heath, Harry Heath? No, nah, he was uh, AP Hill's corps. Oh, yeah, I'm sorry, because Heath was a division. Hill was a corps, yeah. And then you had Ewell's corps coming. And the Union, only, during the beginning of it, only had a division there. And then eventually two more corps would show up at the end of the night. But day one was a complete, like, pretty decent man yeah, size so I'm, I'm... difference. I'm seeing that now on this yeah. uh, on this battle map. It was six core coming in. 
if I'm reading the Roman numerals right, it's uh, the uh, VN1. I think it's the ninth core. Ninth core, that's yeah, it. Showed up. Uh, I know it was Iron Brigade showed up first, was the first yeah, core. Black Hats. Mm -hmm. And then you had, um, How it was Howard's core showed up too, the Secure Cemetery Hills. Um, let me just the little double check in. myself. Happy, happy. Happy. Yeah, it's always sense. it's always good to double check. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you had the Reynolds first core show. First. You had the first core to show up first, which was under Reynolds, which was later uh, Double Day because Reynolds was killed. Yeah, and then <laughs> second core didn't show up until the second day under Hancock. Um, third core didn't show up till the second day. Fourth core didn't show up till the third day. I mean, uh, sixth core didn't show up till the third day. It was Howard's Corps, which is... Ninth, I believe. XI. XI, that's 11th. Yeah, because for some reason you do the big skip from 6th to 11th. Yeah, I don't remember why uh, they did yeah. Howard, Welcome Howard to comes morning. in, and then Sulcum's Corps comes in way Sulcum. later, too. So uh, it was the 1st, the 2nd, and the ninth, or... 11. XI's core, uh, or your first three cores that show up after the first day. Yeah, and speaking a, a little bit about the equipment that they used, by the middle of this war we see this shift from, oh, we're shooting each other with fouling guns and, you know, our muskets we brought from home. At this point, even the Confederates, because they've captured a bunch of Union rifles from arsenals and from battle at this point, uh, they kind of have, they, they have these better rifles, these infield muskets, these more, more uh, modernized Springfield 55s and 61s, um, we even see a few Whitworth rifles, uh, what's his name, Reynolds was very famously shot with a Whitworth rifle from about, I want to say 800 yards? It was a long shot. That gun is impressive all on its own, including yes. its cannon variant. Yeah, and I, yeah, I was gonna say, we know that the Confederates brought, uh, at least two guns worth of Whitworth, uh, six-pounder cannons. Which uh, were used to okay effect the, the the rifled cannon while very advanced for its time because it was a, the first well the first breech loading cannons, you know in the loaded from the butt not the front. wasn't really favored by the Confederate artillerists. It was very accurate and very good for counter battery fire, but against infantry it kind of fell off. Oh yes, the <laughs> your favorite cannons at Gettysburg. Listen, if, listen, they are pretty guns. Yeah. If, uh, um, go ahead. What's up, Sim? No, 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 that's all. I was just going to say, if I remember, one of the reasons the Whitworth can was not favored is unlike its compatriots, like the Parrot and the Napoleon, it didn't have a large variety of shells because they yes. had to be specific shot. Yes, yep, exactly. And the reason it for was that... Also, oh, yeah. I was going to say, the reason okay. for that was because it was a breech-loading cannon. They could only load certain weaponry into it. Yeah, but you gotta realize it's also of a smaller caliber. It's not. Yeah, that's why it was so much better for and it was so much better for counter battery fire because you're not taking out large loads of men with that one. You're using the range to counter artillery, which the Confederates actually did not put them in a great position to do that at the Battle of Gettysburg. They had it on Oak Ridge, and they tried firing upon Culp's Hill, but uh. The Union actually snuck a small section of artillery on uh, Benner's Hill and completely destroyed that side's artillery, uh, pretty much effectively knocking out that whole part of the battlefield's artillery from ever helping day two and day three. Yeah. 
And to answer uh, your question, uh, Joanne, kind of, the uh, the breech load was very similar to what AT guns would later go into use. The biggest difference, though, was it did not have rifling in common sense. It had a uh, octagonal barreling yeah. and bullet. Mm-hmm. I will send you a picture of uh, the Whitworth inside this chat, since I do have one. Uh, but time-wise... Let's start yes, moving on to late war. Yes, yes, so yes. So let's hit late war a little bit and lead into our next topic. For Quick shout out to the Confederates who stole Union uniforms during the uh, war, by the way, because yeah. during a couple of battles, that caused some pretty good confusion. Oh, yeah. Also, yeah, there, there's a good picture of a Whitworth. Thank you, Zen. Yeah, there you go. John L. has... And then uh, after that, Hank, you want to lead off with the end of war? I think John L. Um, yes, after John lowered his hand. Yeah, he, he lowered his hand. Okay. So. In that case, yeah, Hank, you want to start leading off with the end of war stuff? Or I can. <laughs> I guess yeah. he's not here. Hank Bob. Oh, there he goes. He's All right. No. There he is. There you are. There you are. Hank, can you hear us? Yeah, I can hear you. Can you hear me? Yes, yes we can you, hear you. You did the thing right. when you joined on your phone, didn't you? Yeah, I did to try to post yep. the picture, and then I joined back on here. Yeah, yeah it yeah, yeah. does that to me. If that ever happens to anybody, just leave the stage. That, leave that's the, why I just yeah, did it, yeah. Leave the thing, yep. and then um, uh, Just so, let me know what you want to post. I got thousands of pictures of everything. Okay, perfect. Amazing. Um, so let me hit on late war here quickly. So starting in 64, you've got the Overland campaign in the East, and... You've got pretty much Sherman doing the march to sea, and both sides and both Confederate armies would start using trench warfare. Both of them. You got Cold Harbor, the Wilderness, and Spotsylvania, where the Confederates are building these trenches to slow down Grant and defend themselves. They're, at this point, they're not getting any new soldiers, so they've got to learn a way to, you know, fight with their number disadvantage here. Yeah, they got to with that, uh, you see this with Petersburg. These are the most advanced trenches ever seen in the world up until World War One. Longstreet, this was like Longstreet's uh, child. He's so, baby. Like, he created some of the best trenches ever seen in the war. Um, you've got Hood doing a few trench warfare style battles against Sherman on the March to Sea. Also, like where, around the um, UK station. I want to say it was Rosaka's Pass or something. Mm-hmm. During, like right before Atlanta, he did that. He created, which was also interesting because he used the style of Quaker guns to um, try to scare off Sherman, where he would take logs and pretty much make fake cannons to be like, hey, here's some cannons where we're actually defending, but they'd send the soldiers and there was nothing there but sticks and uh, logs. Which, for reference, for those of you who don't know a Quaker gun, because Quakers, the stereotype is a Quakers yeah. don't fight anybody, um, Quaker guns are fake. But what I'm trying to get at with the late war is this is the end of Napoleonic War strategy. There yeah. is no more, after 63 into 64, there is no more really line battles. You're going from trench warfare where you've got now big cannons being used and you know, these battles of sieges of Petersburg, and now you've got the Battle of the Crater where you're using giant explosives to try to, you know, break these trenches. Mm-hmm. The Battle of the Crater is a great battle to look up if uh, anyone doesn't know about it, but Dan I'm not going to go too much into that one, but uh, this is now the beginning of modern warfare. 
Yeah, and you know, with technology of, and strategy. Yeah, and speaking a little bit on that technology, sorry for interrupting there at the end. No, no. Um, okay. At Petersburg, if I remember right, is one of the only two like mainline uses of a Gatling gun in the American Civil War. Uh, on yes. the Confederate side of that, which is you know actually very notable. Uh, which, if you don't know what a Gatling gun is, uh, Zen can probably get a good picture of that for the the group chat here. Uh, a yep. Gatling gun is a rotating barrel. Uh, effectively an early variant of a machine gun wherein it's loaded from the top uh every barrel is dropped from this long like f straight tube magazine into one of i believe 12 or 8 rotating barrels caliber 60 caliber 50 something like that it's it's still effectively minier shot um but they're very large caliber very heavy hitting guns and the the fire rate on these things for the time period when you're shooting two to three shots a minute or maybe, like, eight to nine shots a minute from a Sharps rifle, which was one of the most, like, advanced rifles of the war, alongside the Spencer Carbine, which could put out a very hectic, like, 21 or 23 a minute, if I remember right. Uh, this thing was putting out, like, 400 a minute. And, and so you can't... You... From the picture, it looks like it might be 12 shot. I think it's a 12. But yeah, you, you see this, this yeah. 400 shot monster of a cannon when you're... And it is still, you know, a cannon. It's on an artillery caisson. It shoots effectively a one-inch caliber shell. But the rate of fire on this thing's just, you know, you can't, you can't send a Napoleonic square up against this thing. And they had two of these or three of these during the siege of Petersburg, which was why part of why that was such a long, drawn-out fight. And Gatling got an award for it, didn't he? Richard Gatling, he got a Nobel Peace Prize, if I remember yes. right. But which, the other thing wow. Is this led into pretty much the Germans' Maxim machine gun design as well. This yeah. is like your first. I was gonna say Maxim. We're starting to we're starting to see, um, uh, you know, you're you're getting issues. Uh, you're you know, you have military issues, so you're gonna get military innovations. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, you you're, you're running law on people. You're gonna make a gun that's gonna shoot just as much as uh as a line of people might you know yeah and it only it only takes two people to fire a gatling gun really because you got your loader and you got your guy who's pulling the crank yes sir maybe a third or fourth person to move it when you need to but yeah 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 so i was gonna say yeah thank you connor hiram maxim was american uh this shall we gun. yeah let's use this as a good segue uh talking about technology let's go into battlefield medicine yeah yeah, I've been so, I've been uh, waiting on this one. Yeah. For By the way, Gatling was also bit. American, North yes. Carolina yep. born. Yes, yes. So, uh, let me just do a quick little transfer segment from Civil War medicine, okay, and stuff uh, we see. So, during the with the Anaconda Plan, the South is deprived of many things medically related. You've got the Union using sea sponge, which is you know a pretty absorbent multiple uses while the confederates are using their most produced resource cotton which is a one-time use when you soak it with blood which is pretty much slowing down the infection rate with the confederate army injuries and you see that also with you got your sutures in the union army of string the confederates are using horsehair so they're not using giant spools they're using whatever they can from horses hair so they're not and the Union Army would be issued certain amount of spool per month. So they would stitch people up in a line, pretty much. Keep going for the next person, cut it, go to the next person, so they don't have to waste that much. 
And for new needles, the Union Army is using steel. And same thing. They're only issued so much. They're using the same needle. Compared to using bone or anything they can find like that as well, wood. So it would be a one-time use as well. So you're seeing things medically that the Confederates are using sanitation by using one, you know, one-time use items that you really don't see this day and age for them. Like they're a little ahead of their time without realizing it. Yeah, and let's keep in mind that germ theory was only um, introduced in eighteen in the eighteen sixties. So during the Civil War. We're not really having people who understand uh, the reasoning behind infection, so we're getting we're getting people doing multi-use um, uh, uh, utensils without washing them, or um, mm-hmm. or you know, like even wiping them down. Uh, you're seeing scenes of your medical uh, people just basically soaked with blood at this point because they're just next person as quick as they can and they're trying their best to save people but we're not we don't really have anything that's gonna dull the pain so you have a lot of people dying of shock during this time yeah i mean the two options for for uh, pain management at this point is if they happen to have whiskey on them or here's a belt yeah. Uh, the Union Army was starting to use uh, chloroform. Yeah, starting to. That was a good way to say that. Yeah. But there that is was... also cases of them using morphine, but it was very, very rare mm-hmm. because it yes. was a highly sought after medical. Form. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you, you've got you've got the few things, but with a major arm with major armies where a lot of people are getting shot, and even if they don't die, you're you're um not doing great yeah if you get shot um you know your first your first antibiotics are created in 1928 which you know a little late for the civil war a little late for world war one too if you think about it world war one just a tad. yeah just just a tad but we're starting to we're starting to figure out what we're doing um coming into world war Two on medicines um mm-hmm. but Definitely in World War One, you know, you're you're kind of hoping for a miracle. Yeah, and that's what uh, that's what a few um, that's what a few uh, soldiers got during a battle, um, lovingly called Angels Glow. Oh, and it yeah. was a phenomenon of uh, parasite or, or not really parasites, but bacteria or worms or whatever it was that uh they're sitting in a in a very cold creek waiting for i want to say two three days Mm -hmm. for someone to come and get them because they're wounded and uh and they're they're just sitting there and you know they they kind of notice that their wounds are glowing in the the amongst the people whose wounds were glowing um (laughs) you've got a a higher survival rate which is why they called it angels glow because it really seemed to them like some a uh, holy phenomenon or something where you know these these wounds are going for a reason and these people are surviving because of it they must have been blessed or something <laughs> yeah yeah oh i was just gonna say if i remember correctly just adding on to that story 
they later found out it was actually a parasite that lived in that specific mud. Yeah. It would eventually become penicillin. It was a mold. Uh, no, it's, it, it wasn't that. They, wasn't that? Uh, they, they didn't know what it was until 2004. Right. Um, they they later they later find uh, I believe penicillin is created from a back uh, from like a mold. Yeah, I thought that's what it was. Um, no, it's it's kind of like it's kind of like um, it's actually a helpful bacteria that was eating away at gangrene. Okay. Yeah, yeah. It it wasn't it wasn't really a mold or anything. It was a uh, it was. Yeah, I'm looking at a picture of it right now, and it looks more like a worm. Okay, well, color me yeah. corrected then. <laughs> but I mean, this is the thing about the Civil War is like we're seeing the little bit advancement of technology and medicine. Like mm-hmm. even after the war, you see John C. Pemberton, who was a Confederate general, creating Dr. Pepper. Ah, uh, yes, my I favorite drink. I believe it was Dr. Pepper, or was he the Coke? Um, I don't but, think he was Coke. But um. Uh, Whatever soda he made, and and then I believe the inventor was... of a one sauce also made that during uh, the during Civil 62, War. 62, 1862. <laughs> yeah, y'all yeah. like putting a one sauce on your your steaks, y'all. Eighteen sixty two, middle of Civil okay. War, somebody's making sauce. Uh, it was I... Charles Alderton. S- similar story to Fanta as well, but that's World War Two by, yeah, that's... by the Pem- group that we shall not name right now. Yeah, Pemberton was co-founder of Coca Cola, and you know Coca Cola had cocaine in it. Which was actually used as a medicine. Yeah, you have so, ghosts like, in your blood. Do you Connor would like to yeah. talk. Yes, Connor. Oh, there he is. Can you hear me? Yes, yes yep. sir. Okay, I would like to uh, say that uh, the ninety-five um, percent of Civil War's uh, sol- uh, surgeries happened under anesthesia. Did they really? Yeah, yeah, they had more. As reported by the uh, museum of. Well, you learn something new every day. I did not know that. No, that's good. Thank you. I see. Uh, oh, I get one. So going forward a little bit here, we'll go to World War One. Because oh, actually, you know what? I'll, I'll back up a little bit. I take that back. Um, something that wasn't. Like, building off of this germ theory stuff, we see in the Spanish-American War, you know it was a big killer in that war that wasn't really treated until after the fighting was over, was malaria. We have a lot, a lot of reports of just uh, American soldiers just getting sick, getting dehydrated, and falling under. Uh, A lot of reports of people going crazy uh, just because they've caught malaria and trench foot and such. And, uh, get, like... It's, it's interesting to look at because malaria was more of a killer than the shooting was in the, the Spanish-American War. Maybe yes. And... Uh, I don't know, actually, Kuda. Uh, that'd be something good to look up. Quinine is, uh, of course, the, one of the first drugs that we use to combat the malaria, for those of you who are not aware. Yeah. Um, and, you, you know, every, every war seems to have its disease that follows it. Mm-hmm. Um, I know the Civil War dysentery was... A pretty bad thing uh at the time as well where you're just having people who are basically just pooping themselves out on the battlefield yeah and pooping but, themselves uh, till they die based off yeah. that funny enough i ha- i'm right next to my uh my library right now with all my civil war books i am able to pull up uh i should be able- one of my books has like casualty stuff of like 
wounded, stuff like that, about uh, numbers and losses. Um, let's see. That's fancy. It is called The New Civil War Handbook by Mark Hughes. I've had this for years now. Uh, died, died of disease. Yeah. The Union died of disease was 224,000. Good lord. While the Confederates were 120,000 of diseases. And that's probably from uh, your point earlier of um, of them using one-time use yeah. items. Mm-hmm. Uh, where where you know you're not really getting these uh, blood diseases, you know you're not you're not swapping blood with people. That is until yeah. the Battle of Antietam. Yeah. Yeah. Well, lots lots yeah. of people died. Before we get too far, I do want to go off a little bit of a divot here because it is a bit of funny yeah. part of history, but a sad part as well. Mm. Uh, around that same time, just before the anesthesia. Uh, there is a surgeon. I, if I say his name, I'm pretty sure most people will probably know it. Robert. I, I already know. I already know who you're oh, talking no. about. <laughs> oh no! I know exactly. For those that don't know, he, he was a surgeon in London that was famous for his speed, being able to oh. amputate a leg <laughs> yeah. in two, uh, two and a half minutes without yeah. anesthesia. Well, he is also famous for another thing of causing the first surgery to have a 300% mortality rate. Yeah. There you go. Cutting off the leg of the patient and under, I want to say what it was, is like a minute and 30. Mm -hmm. Cut his leg off. He couldn't staunch the bleeding, caused the patient to die. The surgeon assistant, he accidentally cut their fingers off with that speed causing them to die later from uh, infection yeah. and then a spectator fainted and passed away. Yeah. People were really built different back then. You know? <laughs> yeah. People people really out here dying from from watching Hold on. stuff so, happen. Assassin, you brought up the dysentery with the Civil War. <laughs> yes. I, I believe and- I believe there's some accounts where like, you know, it, it, it's one of those like back back in the day where you saw an officer, you didn't really shoot him. You saw someone like pulling their pants down to to take a poop. You you tried not to shoot him. Yeah. So, in this book as well, diarrhea, dysentery, number of cases reported one million seven hundred and forty one thousand. Oh yes. Yeah, number of deaths recorded forty three thousand. This is the major cause of death for disease wise. Yeah. Next would be typhoid fever. And then the last one would be execution, 143. (laughs) Execution, love it. But uh, causes of battle wounds, 50.6% were from rifle to musket. The next one was unknown shot, which was 42.1. Only 5.7% of battle wounds came from cannons. Yeah. Only 0.2 from saber and bayonet. Well, yeah. I was just going to say, some of that unknown shot can also be attributed to the cannons. Oh, yeah. That's yeah. what I'm saying. It could be. It's just not ascertained is what they say. But They aren't sure because there's only, like, chunks left of that, man. Yeah, just, yeah. <laughs> I remember, I just, as we were talking about, remembered that I had, that this book had all that stuff. I was like, huh, let me look up those numbers exactly from it. Uh, does it mention anything about trench foot considering the use of trenches later in the war? Also, I'm going to bring Connor back onto the stage. Yeah. Uh, trench foot. I imagine it'd be under a different name back then. It probably, but um, I, I, 
I imagine it was just as much an issue then than it was. Uh, I want to know what they mean by consumption in this. Tuberculosis. Consumption? That's diarrhea. No, 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 no. No, it's not. Diarrhea, consumption is diarrhea not. was up there. Consumption is oh. tuberculosis. Yes. Okay. Because there was fourteen thousand and only sixteen thousand deaths on this. Uh, try looking for immersion foot. There you go. Uh, while, while you're looking for that, let's yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, hi again. I'm sorry for uh, no, but uh, anyway, uh, Joseph Worcester, the, the the guy you were talking about earlier, was the uh, surgeon with a three hundred percent death rate uh, in one surgery. Uh, his ability to Perform a surgery really fast was accounted to his uh, like superhuman strength. He was reportedly <laughs> able to like stop the blood flow to a person's legs with his bare hands. So he would just apply a tourniquet with his hands and he would just cut it off really quick. Man was built different. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Uh, I, 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 I believe I saw I someone else raise their hand, but they brought it back down. Um. Oh, What's up, Dimitri? He, he just messed with us. Okay. Um, just being a sneaky. Yeah. But yeah. Um, but you know, you're starting to, see, you're probably starting to see certain things for the first time uh, during the Civil War, like uh, trench foot or what, 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 what did you call it, Zen? Or what did they call it? Uh, immersion foot. Immersion foot. Um, and you know, it's you're starting to get into these like not very pleasant conditions. Lice is uh, is also a very big issue mm -hmm. uh, during these time periods. You're having people routinely just trying to clean clean it out of people's hair, and they're just chucking the little lice onto the uh, onto like a fire or something. So I actually have the numbers. Uh, they have an unknown number of cases reported but 1500 uh in deaths Immersion right. foot yeah yeah so that's what i got Dang. and actually most of them didn't come from trenches a lot of it came from the prison camps instead actually that you know what I can yes that. that i can i can also believe that you know you're it just you, takes mud <laughs> yeah all, so, uh, all it takes is a wet condition so i'm telling you if you want interesting facts but, you know, pictures, technology, stuff like that. This book is a good one to look at. I will post it later. It's called The New Civil War Handbook, Facts and Photos for Readers of All Ages, Mark Hughes. There's some, it's got some really good numbers in here, and it's, the graphs are really easy to understand, too. If you wouldn't mind um, posting some sort of link to that uh, yeah, I will. in, like, the library or something. There yeah, we post go. That, post that also out of here because once this podcast is over the whole chat disappears so you might want to post yeah go ahead and put it in the library so we can look at that later well it just disappeared because i deleted the channel and recreated it yeah there you uh, go but i definitely uh recommend this book if you want an extra one to add to your library yeah. and lamb you may want to put this in their descriptions as well yeah absolutely you, uh, um but yeah uh let's go ahead and get back into uh into our lovely conversation on medicines so you know we're we're seeing a lot of issues going on in these early early uh, battles, and um, even even before the Civil War, like we were saying, you have outbreaks of malaria in certain areas, uh, and there's probably not a lot of things people could really do about it. Uh, we start seeing more innovations 
into uh, the 1900s uh, or the 20th century um, uh, with World War One and World War Two, or seeing just breakthroughs in in technology in general, and um, and you know you've got uh, industrialization. Uh, things are just happening faster. They're able to make things easier and better. And uh, so you're starting to see um, vaccines rolling out for certain things. You're starting to see uh, uh, people <laughs> making penicillin. Um, and and uh, germ theory is starting to catch on more. Uh, a lot more one-time use items are being used instead of remake uh, reusing things where uh, you're starting to get blood diseases spreading because it's just extremely unsanitary conditions um, the way that with what they are using. Yeah. Uh, just to add into that before we get into the 20th century, we <laughs> owe a lot of that innovation to Jonathan Letterman, which was the medical director of the Army of Potomac, and William A. Hammond, who was a Surgeon General of the Union Army. Both those people, uh, at the battle of after the Battle of Antietam, led to major advances of uh, medical, including Hammond's design of a clean, well ventilated hospitals, which <laughs> dropped the mortality rate to a unheard of at that time eight percent. Yeah, Stallings would like to speak. Go ahead and join us, Stallings. And you're muted right now. There you go. Yeah, this is only somewhat related, but have y'all heard the story of uh, General Dan Siggles? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. His leg definitely helped with uh, medical, too. Yeah, and um, how on the anniversary of when he lost it, like July 2nd or 3rd, um, he would go to the hospital, or it's like some museum where it's kept, and you go and visit the leg, and there's a story that um, um, like after seeing his amputated leg, he was disappointed that his foot was not included. It's just like shit like that. It's funny, I guess. <laughs> I uh, I personally don't know the story, so if we could have some explanation on it. So General Dan Sickles was a uh, Union Army general during the Battle of Gettysburg, and he brought his um, was it brigade or. No, I'm not sure. Brigade he was out a, into um, division leader. Oh, okay, division. He brought his division out into Devil's Den, which was not great, you know, instead of holding a little round top. And he was told by, uh, I forget who the, like, Hi, I guess me. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and he was told by me to retreat, like, fall back to little round top. And as he rode off, confederates attacked um their positions anyway his left i believe leg was severed by a cannonball he survived but the um leg was put on display in some like museum of medicine it's something to survive a, a shot by artillery yeah. yeah he shouldn't have even been up there he uh disobeyed commands and threw his division in the middle which almost broke the union line which yeah, led to uh, first Minnesota stand. Yeah, but uh, yeah. Um, and I think somebody else wanted to speak as well. Connor is up here. Yeah, I already brought him up. Oh, yeah. yeah. So 
I would like to say that Dan Sickles was a core commander. And he, uh, so basically what he did is uh, he saw high ground in the peach orchard in front of him. And uh, in his past battle experience at Chancellorsville, which really wasn't a good experience where, uh, so basically he saw, he wanted to, uh, he requested uh, to General Meade that he would attack uh, what he believed was a retreating rebel force in front of him, which was actually the advance uh, units, I believe the Stonewall Brigade of Jackson's command, uh, flanking the entire Union line. Uh, he was then ordered by me to fall back off the high ground that he was on and uh, pull back. I don't know what the specific position, but anyways, after he pulled off the high ground, the Union's, uh, the Confederates were able to put their cannons on the high ground and then utterly demolish his core, which I don't remember what core he commanded, but uh, uh, it was his the third core. Decisions, yeah, his decisions at Peach Orchard wasn't just pure incompetence. Oh, he was absolutely. also a pretty good divisional commander. Uh, I don't know. I just think that maybe he's a little bit misunderstood. Yeah. And that can be said about uh, quite a few... Um... Uh, leaders of militaries where you're having um, <laughs> you're having some tough decisions on their part and not everything works all the time. Yeah. Uh, just to go back on to Hammond and Letterman just a bit because these guys did a whole lot for medicine today. Uh, their facilities allowed doctors to train and get experience with this which allowed them to see a huge variety of these sicknesses that were later countered like uh what would become trench foot the malaria all that stuff and so these doctors became more and more familiar thanks to these systems they also used something that lamb probably is familiar with with his military experience of breaking the wounded into categories yeah, I know it's triage. Really triage, yeah. Yeah, and oh man, this is. I'm gonna be upfront and honest. Triage is very, very difficult to want to do. Because so the way it, it is, it really is. You break your Cause... you break your guys into these categories of okay, this guy's likely to live. We're gonna put him as a green. This guy may or may not make it. We're gonna make him a yellow. This guy's like high priority. We have to work on him right now. He's a red. This guy's definitely dead. <laughs> That's a black. So yeah, we we followed the exact same triage with EMS, with mm -hmm. fire department, EMT work, and the really the way we break it down is green is your walking wounded. If they are able to stand on their own and breathe on their own, they're green. Get them out of there. They yeah. go to far away hospitals. Don't flood the nearest hospitals. You see the big, the one the most mass using of this for EMS services is the Boston Marathon. Yeah. Because yep. you've got all your walking wounded, and then your yellow are the people that can't get up, but can still control their own airway that they can breathe. There, you're like, okay, stay here, you know. Yeah, they're keep conscious, an eye. basically. Your red are if they're not breathing on their own, take care of them. Your black are if they you did. if they can't control their own airway and you try for two minutes and you still can't control it or their bleeding is too much to control. They're dead. You have to move on to your next one. Yeah, and it's very, uh, but it's very callous. But it's something that you just you have to do. 
it, it's, it's important. Great, it's, it's very important very, to to save more lives in in total than um, trying to save everybody. But it's also a very good logistical thing because yeah. for EMS wise, you're like, okay, I got walking wounded. I'm not sending them to a nearby trauma center. I'm sending them to like three towns away. Yeah. And yeah. sending the yellow and red to your nearest trauma centers. So it's good to have that logistically as well. It's a great, you know, asset to have is knowing triage. Yeah. Yep. And that is all broken down to these guys at the Battle of Antietam. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's it's war is great for technology innovation. I mean, if we're talking about Battle of Antietam with thing as well, besides triage. Let's bring up the Red Cross. Oh yeah, that, uh, that that was invented pretty much at the Battle of Antietam. Yeah, well, it'd be exact. Their name back then was the uh, uh, United um, States Sanitary Commission. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> because they were having so many uh, doctors or not doctors, they're having so many soldiers come in that they had to hire doctors to come in and take a look at the wounded. Yeah, but um, it was uh. What's her name? I. It's one of the most famous names. How can I not remember? I know who you're right talking now? about. Uh, Florence uh, Nightingale. No. 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 Uh, she was the angel. Of, she was called the angel of the battlefield too. Yeah. What the fuck? What's her name? Does anybody? Are does anybody in the Clara audience Barton? know? Clara Barton. I think Clara, Clara Barton. Barton. Yep. There it is. That's it. Yeah. She's the pretty much the inventor of uh, the American Red Cross, at the Battle of Antietam. A very cool yep. lady. No, Connor, that, that is not it. <laughs> Absolutely not. Shame on you. <laughs> not <a> shame. <laughs> Helen Keller for reference is what was said. But uh, no, Lord. I think we should probably move on to later war now. Yeah, let's yeah, uh, so... like uh, World War One with Lamb. Yeah, I know so... stuff on that. Yeah, uh, something very cool that I wanted to bring up about World War One uh, is this thing called the Thomas Splint, and. Uh, for you guys who might not be familiar with what a Thomas Splint is, it was this really, really cool piece of uh, equipment. And so, before the Thomas Splint, you have a uh, let's say you you're in the you're in a battle and you get shot and you fracture your, your hip, you fracture your femur, right? Before this splint was invented, you have an eighty percent chance of death if you fracture your femur because your femur bone is just going to just crack and is going to push outwards and it's going to just cut all of your arteries in your leg and you are going to bleed out and die. Then this guy during World War One, uh, his last name Thomas, I can't remember his first name, I'm sorry, uh, gets this great idea of what if we just like put this thing that made the bone sit in place. And it's literally just, you know, a metal tube. It looks like a guitar case. Yeah, thank you, Zen. You're welcome. Just a metal tube that you sit your leg in and this one little this one little piece of like pipe tubing, basically, with a little fuzzy thing on the back, took this 80% fatality rate injury to a 20% fatality rate injury. It literally switched... So you're, yeah, you're swapping the... Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, so... Yeah, um, it, it... I believe it's a metal U-shaped uh, um, piece Device. of equipment. Yeah, it's and then, a picture of it. In. Yeah, yeah. He, so just trying to describe it a little better, it's it's a long U-shape, and it goes from uh, your foot all the way up to your hip, and it's going. To, it has a. Um, it would go uh, beyond your foot, so it would pull your leg. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, 
it, it's kind of got like an oval that you would put the leg in and it goes all the way up and then it you use that to kind of pull the leg down so you're not you're not uh so all those large very very strong muscles aren't getting ripped apart mm -hmm. and moving your bone into areas that are just ripping your leg apart from the inside out i will say bleeding this was such a big innovation also for ems level because we currently still use the traction splint for any long bone fracture in your leg oh, because yeah. of the mortality rate we use these on big car accidents if we could get their leg with it we will use it because it will control the bleeding pretty much because the likelihood of your bone going back into your leg and cutting arteries and veins are pretty high it's high yeah well i mean here's even some personal usage uh when i was in the military i broke my femur so uh first thing that they did when they got me to medical was they stuck me in a traction splint and it's not so, comfortable. No, it, it definitely sucks. Isn't. It it's sucks. really not comfortable. But, but you know but what? It's, it's better a, than dying. It's, you know? It really yeah, is. Like, I, I could have not been here. So, think about. I like to think about that for a minute. and it, It's kind of humbling, to be honest with you. Yeah, so to think something made way, way back in World War One is still relevant today. Mm -hmm. And that that's a, that's a lot of things. You know, you have, you have plenty of things that were created quite some time ago that are still relevant and still used Connor, um, if land, you, you found your injury wasn't service related hey hey shut <laughs> <laughs> but uh for some of you listeners that are still not able to grasp what this device does if your dog has ever like hurt their leg towards the upper hip then most likely they get this device with a cast yeah yeah, it's basically just you're you're yanking the the foot or the leg down, so it just completely immobilizes it, um, and you're you're just way less likely to uh, to mess yourself up more than what you're already at. Yeah, and like like uh, Hank was saying, it's uncomfortable. I mean, it's literally okay. To say it's uncomfortable is an understatement. It feels like your leg is pulling itself apart. It well, that's what it's supposed feels to do. like it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And think of think of a uh, a stretching rack, a medieval torture, but just for your leg. Exactly. That's exactly what it is. You're clicking it as you yeah. go. Uh, yeah. Like, it's like tying a tourniquet. If you've ever properly tied a tourniquet, it sucks. I was actually just about to bring that up because that's yeah. another great invention that has saved lives and limbs is the tourniquet mm -hmm. because. In modern wars, you can have these guys who've been hit with IEDs, explosions, shot in the arm, whatever, and you throw a tourniquet on, that arm could be saved for days. And when they get back, they could get fully repaired. Yeah, and it's like, like you're not supposed I, to keep a tourniquet on for more than, I think, five minutes is what your recommended length is. Yeah, but it could keep your limbs on for days if you mm -hmm. need to. And EM, for fire, fire, EMT stuff that I do at work, car accidents you get a decent sized laceration on somebody and you can't control the bleeding with just pressure we don't we're not going to wound pack it because it's a laceration it's not like a bullet shot but we're not going to use a hemostatic agent because that's too expensive we're yeah. throwing a tourniquet on them and writing and the big thing is when you throw a tourniquet is write down the date and time you put it on mm -hmm. so when they get to the hospital and stuff they can see it and know you know what they're working with as well but 
the amount of times we've saved someone's leg or arm or whatever with the tourniquet is just, you know, great. How the only you... downside is, what? So, it's, uh, it's, it's continue and I'll ask. I was just going to say, the only thing you can't put on your turn a tourniquet on is joints because yeah. then it just won't. Work. And your head. Yeah, your, your neck probably uh, won't yeah. work very well. <laughs> That's a little uh, armor joke for our, our viewers out there. But uh, what's up, assassin? Um, so how do you, how would you properly maintain a tourniquet to kind of get the best chance to keep that limb? Is Honestly, it just you put it on and hope for the best kind of thing? or I would put it on, and then if it's an arm injury, I would uh, sling and swath it. If you don't so know what that means, is I'm going to take a piece of cloth and go around your arm and hold it up to your chest and tie it there. Gotcha. It, it depends on like where your injury is best. Oh, like, yes. You, you can use a tourniquet and then also use a traction splint for long bone injuries for sure, too. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's like, an old style tourniquet. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah. In our in our personal Discord, for, because I know a lot of you won't be able to see it, we have a uh, an old tourniquet, and it looks kind of like a <laughs> wind up, <laughs> a wind up belt, a wind up. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> oh gosh. So these the are one... these are great, but um, it, it, the 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 first one it's got a brass handle on it and it looks like one of those little dolls that you'd wind up the back and uh and it would like move on its own and it's just basically a belt with that on there to tighten it up but we've we've got some other pictures from other wars that uh well, the, a little uh, more modern getting there and then we have our modern one and uh, well, the other one that I posted is also a World War One. It's just they didn't want to carry the brass because it was so heavy. Yeah. So instead, they went to this uh, to wood cloth pole. and wood. Yeah, Dimitri, wood the one that, that you post is the one I use. That's the one I use when I was in the service. Yeah. And let and, and I know a lot of people can't see this right now, but um, uh, our our original one is our cloth. Uh, it looks it looks exactly like a belt you'd expect to see in World War One. And it's got a little stick that turns, but it runs a very, very parallel vision with the uh, with the modern day one, where it looks it's like... it, it, it's exactly the same, it, or at least it looks exactly the same from my eyes, um, other than a few different key material. differences with material. The yeah. way to describe the belt in my opinion, would be uh, it's a very easily identified canvas material. And it's basically in the same style of those belts you would see on like cargo shorts or some other pair of shorts that have a uh, belt there for formality but not function. Mm -hmm. And it has the uh, dual belt loops yeah. that you would tie the belt into the other belt loop and then go back through, and then you pull that tight, and it's that same sequence, except for it has a wood pull on it, so you can tighten it even further. I guess if we're going on about stuff like this, another good thing to bring up are hemostatic agents. The powder that you... Ever Silver remember powder. that scene from... Um, yeah, remember that scene from Saving Private Ryan with the machine gun? Uh, I can't exactly remember the name of the character that was shot down by the machine gun. They're pulling pouring the sulfur powder all over him. That's kind of like one of the first uses of um, hemostatic agents. It's supposed to clot your blood yeah. at the wound. Um, in the EMS service, we use it for gunshot wounds more than anything. We're not going to use it on a laceration. We would rather, uh, you know, tourniquet it or control it with pressure. 
but it's a uh, pretty useful invention. Uh, the hospitals use it not really as a powder, but they will directly, you know, inject plasma into the site to also do your white blood cells and help clot it as well. There you go. That's a uh, first aid training uh, poster from World War II. Yeah. It's interesting to look at these old uh, first aid pouches because, like, modern day we have IFAX. We have these kits that have, like, your tourniquet. You have um, the modern day sofa powder. I don't know what it's called off the top of my head. You have packing bandages. You have your field dressings. So, yeah, it's interesting to see how it has changed because it's still, like, it's funny because it's still about the same size <laughs> looking at the picture that Zen just posted. Yeah, I mean, a lot, you know, you can only get so compact before mm -hmm. you're uh, losing function. Yeah. But um, if if we, um, mo so movies are a great thing to look at because it gives you a visual on, on what we're talking about. So you see yeah. things like um, Hacksaw Ridge, uh, Hacksaw story Ridge following Desmond Doss. Mm -hmm um and he's he's if if the, for those who don't know who Desmond Doss was uh in real life um and portrayed in the movie he's a man who did not want to take up arms against the enemy but instead wanted to help uh his fellow men um in, in with medical uh he was a medic and so he went into the Pacific theater with nothing but his medical uh, bag and his um, Red Cross helmet and uh, would go around and end up uh, getting the Medal of Honor, I believe. Yeah. yeah. Um, for his, his what he did because he saved something like, what, 80 people, I want to say? 97. Yeah. 97. There you go. So, and it's even it's even more than that because so you get Desmond Doss right, and his story. The reason he got a Medal of Honor is the way where he was fighting. I don't remember which island it was on, but it was during the Pacific Island Hopping campaign. I believe it was Okinawa. Wasn't I want to say it was because, Okinawa because they were going up the cliff side. Yeah, I, yes, so I believe it was. They, they have these nets that they have to climb up this about eighty foot cliff. It was Oki. It was Oki. Thank you. And so you've got a whole company of Marines, effectively, up fighting on top of this cliff. And they, they take the cliff, insane, <laughs> um, take basically no casualties doing this, um, which is, you know, with, which heavy, with how heavy fire they were under is crazy. Um, but so they take this, this cliff face, and then uh, basically a few hours later, the Japanese come back and attack them, and they start pushing the... Uh, Americans back off the cliff, and they do. They push the Americans all the way down the cliff until uh, there's basically three dudes up on top of the cliff, and one of them's Desmond Doss. Uh, other two guys get pulled back down, and the only people that are up on top of this cliff now is Desmond Doss, a bunch of pissed off Japanese dudes, and like hundreds of American casualties. Yeah, a lot of wounded people. I believe. I believe. Um... Desmond Doss also saved a few wounded Japanese, if I he remember tried. correctly. I don't know if any of them survived. I know he did. Take I, I don't think I, I think he took a couple down and likely the the people who were retrieving them at the bottom of the cliff probably uh, didn't let them survive. So, uh, um, uh, 
arguably some I don't of those know, things I don't that we know. don't really know <laughs> I, we don't yeah. really know people didn't i don't think many people really talked about that but I believe he did make an attempt to uh, to save uh, yeah. some Japanese injuries. He did. Uh, uh, I just want to bring up. Oh, go ahead. never mind. Let's go ahead, son. I was just gonna say he uh, he also suffered some severe injuries up there, including yes. an arm fracture from a sniper bullet mm-hmm. and seven tin pieces of shrapnel from kicking a grenade to save his other troops. And he uh, um, terrible, terrible. Uh, yes, uh, he, he when he was being. Um, uh, stretchered away uh another american um got wounded and he he threw himself off of the stretcher to give it to the other uh mm-hmm. to the other his ally mm-hmm. uh instead of taking him yeah uh because that's just kind of the guy and the guy he was he he was very compassionate and um they that's that's something they didn't add into the movie because they felt it wouldn't be very realistic uh <laughs> even yeah. though it really happened um but that's something they didn't really have in the movie um i just want to throw one more last thing out here and i think we should start wrapping, wrapping it up with our last 15 minutes since it is almost 11 o'clock oh yeah uh one of the things that you know you're talking about the gear that uh DOS would have worn with the Red Cross helmet. Funny enough, they would eventually, in the Pacific Theater, stop wearing the Red Cross on their helmet. Yes, I because was... the Japanese did not follow the Geneva Convention rule of shooting medics. They will purposely target them because they knew, you know, they were saving the soldiers that would come back and fight again. Mm-hmm. And the West, in the European front, not so much, but in the Pacific Theater, absolutely, the medics had learned quickly the not wear the cross on their helmets because they were purposely targeted yes which is another which is another part of hacksaw ridge where uh when he meets the other medics they he they tell him to take the the helmet off because it's nothing but a uh yeah, a target target it's like wearing it's point. like wearing a uh a bullseye off, on your head. it's like wearing an, also an officer mark on your helmet because anyone yeah. was targeting officers well even yeah. I, even building off of that a little bit uh Pacific Theater was the only theater where American medics have gone armed. Yeah. Yeah, it was... That's why it was such a big issue with him not wanting to have a rifle, is because um, it, it, they kind of needed it. Uh, yeah. They they wanted their they medics to be safe. To be safe. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, um... Just to go back a bit, so we can... Uh, Interior. Go back towards the topic a bit. Mm-hmm. One of the other things that changed a lot between uh, the Civil War up to these uh, more modern wars is the training and the supplies a standard field medic would carry. It went from bandages and whiskey to and maybe the occasional morphine to carrying bandages, hemostatic agents, tourniquets, two different kinds of bandages, uh, painkillers all the way out wazoo. Several things of morphine, it, it, their kits just grew and grew, and so did their training. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, a, a little a little piece of of World War Two gear is um, they had uh, these little they they have these very big bags and they have very large suspenders that they would wear, and on those suspenders would go these clips and they look kind of like belts. 
and they would use those. They would attach them to the shoulder parts and uh, they would be used for the stretchers. So they, they instead of carrying them on their hands, uh, they would be carrying them on their shoulders. Mm-hmm. And that is something pretty important because if you're thinking of casualties and where, where you would have to take some of these people, um, uh, you're looking at, you're looking at some, crazy places. um, yeah, some pretty crazy yeah. places, some pretty long walks. Um, and with that, I think with yeah, 15, our 15 minute, uh, wrap up. Yeah. yeah. It's now 11 o'clock. We're going to move into the Q and a portion. Uh, if anybody has any final questions, comments, concerns about any of the topics we covered tonight, uh, you are free and well, you're free and welcome to add to that. Uh, otherwise, uh, Hank, I think we have a very special uh, topic for next week, because uh, for those of you who don't know, next week is going to be St. Patrick's Day. Yes, so my plan for next week is, since it's St. Patrick's Day, for our Civil War topic, we are going to be talking both about the Irish Brigade units on the Union and Confederate side. And for our non-Civil War-related topic, we will be talking about the Finian raids in Canada. Since I will be on vacation in Canada when this podcast goes on, I will try to take pictures of any battlefield if I visit it. So a little snippet about the Finian raids are, after the Civil War, quite a bit of Union and Confederate Irish volunteers decided to create a unit and go invade Canada on behalf of Ireland. Yeah. And the raid lasted for like two to three years, and they didn't have line battles as much, but it was some skirmishes with the Canadian army. The mountains, and, yeah. You know, I think it's a cool little thing to do while I'm up in Canada that correlates with, uh, you know, St. Patrick's Day. So I'll be uh, drinking Guinness and probably finding some Canadian drink while I'm up there during this little podcast. Yes, sir. So yeah, uh, don't forget to wear your green next week, and uh, we'll have a good time with that. Anybody have any questions, comments, concerns before we close? I have one thing I'd like to add. Yeah, absolutely. I also think it's kind of a bit of sadness with it, but a little bit of fun with it. Uh, the Several of the World War II medics, from what I'm finding here, researching a bit more, is they also carried a pack of cigarettes in their medical kit. And what they would do is if the soldier was beyond any condition they knew they could help treat or anybody would treat, they would give them a cigarette and light it and then let them go. Yeah. Like they would give them a cigarette and let them go. If you're going to go, you might as well go out comfortable, you know? Yeah. And that goes, Uh, that goes back to our talk about triage in different stages. Like you have these red stages and we'll even break the red stage down a little bit further. Uh, you see, you go through and see, can I save this person, or is this person a lost cause? Do I need to upgrade him to a black from red, even though he's still alive? And that, that's something that's, it's rough, you know? You have to go through that and make those calls right there on the spot while you're, might still be surrounded by gunfire. Yeah, you're, you're seeing, you're seeing differences, uh, changes in weaponry as well, so mm-hmm. wounds are getting a lot different more difficult they're different um explosives have been mastered at this point in my opinion um where you know you, you get blown up you properly get blown up yeah um and you know you might lose a leg so a lot of the time if you're gonna go 
you might as well go out comfortable and that's that's important part of that i will say due to modern drugs and such it is a lot more survivable to get hit with a gun Um, obviously if you get shot in the head or the heart you're done that's the end of the story yeah i'd say i'd say modern i'd say modern rifles are probably a little bit better than muskets yeah and also like the (laughs) lead poisoning for one you don't yeah we're not not shooting lead at each other anymore and we also don't have uh flowering that we used yeah. to have with mm-hmm. like the lead rounds and unless unless the stuff. unless the round is made to do that specifically which is banned by you the know, Geneva I, convention i i think yeah another thing that we for civil war medicine that you know medical wise is uh pretty much banning the use of tri-tip bayonets because of how yeah. hard they were to stitch mm-hmm. up because you know can't. they would go in creating three entrance wounds but then also you know they would twist it and break whatever's in the way as they pull out of it mm-hmm. so i mean that was kind of the event, you know, change to our now sword type bayonets is to stop those wounds. Yeah. I mean, uh, I, I don't believe uh, triangular wounds are actually that difficult. I think, uh, uh I think no, it's, they are. Uh, I'll be honest, Chief. They, they're pretty tough to patch up. I hope. All right. I'll trust, I'll trust the medical guy. You know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'll um, concede to that. I'll, I'll trust the medical guy. A little bit of a correction. The Geneva convention actually never banned triangular bayonets. It they was, mostly uh, bayonet. They the mostly, uh, prohibited ones, right? bayonets with serrated edges. Ah, uh, gotcha. I'd, I'd also just one more quick tangent about medical, uh, uh, things for the civil war um i don't know i don't know if you guys know this but when abraham lincoln got assassinated and he was shot in the back of the head the head um the the doctor who uh was looking at his wound stuck his fingers into his brain cavity and was messing around trying to find he was rummaging around for the bullet (laughs) So you, you see, you see some, you see some very weird things when it comes to that stuff, because there's a, there's an understanding of, of medicine, but it's kind of a loose grip right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, one thing, Hank, Bob, you're not actually entirely wrong. Uh, it's not the Geneva, it was the hog. Hog convention. Okay. Gotcha, gotcha. Thank you. I just knew that I felt like they got banned for a reason, but yeah, yeah. they were okay. they were banned because it caused unnecessary suffering and hog, <laughs> which is why Geneva didn't ban them because they were already, already banned. banned. Yeah. So, so I'll actually give you a little uh, snippet on why I know triangle wounds are uh, a little, inch, you know, not fun. Is I'm a reenactor, and let's just say someone really got stabbed with a bayonet at one of our reenactments, and. By God, controlling that bleeding was one of the worst things I've ever had to try to do. Like, I've dealt with, like, you know, wrist slits and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. The bleeding on that was such a pain to control. Yep. I, I, from, from Civil War accounts, and this is yeah. just, um, they, from the Civil War accounts, they didn't really, uh, say anything that about those wounds being all that bad. They said they were actually pretty easy. Uh, to patch up um, and and they were able to do it quite effectively and the wounds from the triangular bayonets weren't oftentimes fatal unless they got infected 
Um, I think that would also be due to where it got stabbed. I believe. Yeah. I believe. Yeah, of course. Um, but you know, uh, I believe it was a union uh, doctor who recorded, and I'll I'll do some research on this later just to double check myself. But he, uh, I believe, he recorded um, the conditions of of uh, soldiers who are hitting, uh, who are getting uh, into melee engagements and getting stabbed. I mean, I feel like the main thing with the bayonet wasn't just like the triangle. It was just you know how if you see in any war film, the whole point of the bayonet is to stab and twist. It was the extra internal injuries that it was causing. Yeah, but but overall, it, I don't believe it was. It, it's definitely not impossible to patch up. Oh, um, and it, and they were able to do it. Um, yeah. So it's just it's I'll just a matter of, of I, I believe I believe bit. it was also a uh, it, it was also easier to create a mm-hmm. triangular bayonet. It wasn't necessarily because it did more damage. Right because uh, it was easier to create i will say Uh, like we have to take a couple of these with a grain of salt just because these are people that made it back to medical in time yeah like if you're on the field and you're just in the middle of the fight and you get stabbed or something it doesn't matter if you got a triangle bayonet or whatever hold on let me uh wambu's head is uh okay because even the hessen's head is excited go ahead wambu's I was just about to say the exact thing that you oh, just yeah. thought, but I was like, first of all, uh, the, 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 the thing about the triangular thing, uh, bayonets being more easy to produce is the actual reason for why they were triangular. They, they, that was not specifically meant to kill people or, uh, or, or something like that. The other thing is the survivorship bias, because as he said, the reason why the, the Union Doctor was able to record most of those guys not dying of the bayonet wounds unless they got infected in the first place is because nothing vital had been hit. Because if you get impaled with a 20-inch piece of steel, no matter the you're shape, done. if it hits yeah. anything vital, yeah, no, I mean, you're that, never going to see a doctor. That can, account for any, that can account for any shaped uh, anything. Uh, blade or anything. You know, mm. if it's triangular or regular... Uh, bladed uh bayonet if you get hit in the wrong spot of course you're gonna die exactly but... so you're probably never gonna see a doctor in the first place which is why that is not pretty, not necessarily a problem with the wound shape more like the you have have you hit anything vital and you actually made it to the doctor in the first place yeah yeah because we also have to remember at this point in time battlefield care like this triage that we're talking about wasn't a thing yet <laughs> You just kind of, if you have an injury, you just kind of crawl your way back to your lines if you can. A walk if you're able to, or you wait until the battle's over and the doctors will come to you and find you. Like, there wasn't just run up to this guy, slap a bandage on him, and just run away. No, that didn't happen until, like, Spanish-American War, World War One. So, a lot of... Good. Oh, I was gonna say, have the cover art of our episode in the chat. Today, oh yeah, that's gonna know. be our cover today. I posted it. Yeah. But uh, yeah, so at least people that make it back, uh, really, these are the guys that are likely to survive because they they made it back to a doctor. You know, the the injury wasn't serious enough that they they couldn't move. If that makes sense. 
even even if it's a serious wound, I believe it's the, the scene or uh, there's a scene in Gods and Generals that's depicted very well where they the guy gets his arm blown off at Fredericksburg. Oh yeah, like, I know what you're talking if about. If you get a limb amputated by by a cannonball, if you can make it back yourself, your survival chances increase like tenfold probably. Yeah. Because if you miss a leg and can't walk back yourself, you gotta be lucky if somebody actually comes around to carry you back. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know what so, you're talking that about. That is probably that. also a big part. As as you said, triage wasn't a thing. You probably got carried off after the battle if there was time for it, and that's yeah. it. But, I mean, that could be said about any wound. You know, if time, if you're yeah. going to die from it, you're going to die from it. But for, for those who, um, I mean, melee engagements were not that huge. It, it was more of a uh, it was more of a morale thing or a uh, of course you know you're 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 trying you're trying to route the enemy if you're if you're going into a uh, melee charge. You Nobody know, you, wants to get stabbed with a sharp thing in the first. Yeah, you. Right? So I, I actually have a recreation of a triangular bayonet, and it's you know about as long as your forearm, um, and it's it's one of those things where if you see a big line of of you know few hundred people running at you with forearm length blades more likely than not you're probably not going to engage with them you know you're just gonna you're kind of gonna turn tail and go the other way but yeah i I believe we've uh taken up um about all our time we probably uh, have gone over our our expected clock a little bit um, yeah, we, we went a little bit over with the infantry one, but I think that was a good discussion. So. Yeah. yeah. Alright, in that case, uh, let's go ahead and close it out. Thank you everybody for showing up tonight. I appreciate each and every one of you who came in. Uh, I'd also like to take a minute to thank our troops, those guys that we're talking about a little bit tonight, and for supporting us and our great nation. And um, I hope everybody has a wonderful night. I hope you guys come back next week when we get this started again, uh, talking about the Irish. And, um, anybody got anything else they want to add to close? They may be gone, but they're not forgotten. Yes. And we do have the uh, week afters, um, podcast kind of ideas. Um, so we are, we are going to be ready for that. Um, Yes. Uh, yeah. I would also like to say, remember the Alamo? That was yesterday. <laughs> yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yeah. Uh, I think that's I it. I think this episode went pretty great. Alright, I'm going to go ahead and cut the stream here. Uh, y'all have a good night. Thank y'all for listening. <laughs>